you'll turn it in your uh, Bibles to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. And as you're turning there, just a little story. In July, the people in my world uh, were enamored with the show Quarterback. Uh, they were just, uh, they loved it. I, I like football, but I'm not really like a football guy. Uh, it, you, it doesn't take too long to be around me for, for, that, for you to figure that out. However, everybody I know, even the people who aren't football people, said you should watch it. It's amazing. I still haven't watched it, but I, I've heard uh, and I've read a little bit on it that it's a documentary, and it's certainly about football, but it's a little more than that. Uh, it's about three men who are quarterbacks and how that job affects their families, their psychology, how they deal with success, rejection, and even impending retirement. You feel as though you kind of grow to know them a little more as people and what it means to be a quarterback. Well, looking into the, a window of each of those men's lives, you kind of see a common element. And that common element is what they do to win, what they do to win. And many of them have a different take on that. Some of them think, if I'm winning at home with my family, it doesn't matter what happens on the field. If I'm winning it with my team, right, if my defense gets me and, and I'm good with them and I'm good with my offense, I'm, I'm great, I'm winning that's going to get us more wins as a team. Lots of different routines, lots of different approaches to how they win. Today we're going to look at a story that's familiar to many of us in the Old Testament and see how God wins. So as you're in your Bible, Joshua chapter 6, before we go there, a little bit of background. This passage takes place after everything we've been looking at in Exodus and in Leviticus for the past year. If we look back uh, at the events of the book of Numbers, which happens right after Leviticus, we would see the nation of Israel that is, frankly, doomed to wander a wilderness for 40 years because of their lack of faith and their lack of trust uh, toward the God who had repeatedly shown himself to be trustworthy. Um, they sent spies into this land that we're going to read about today. And when those spies came back, they came back with a report, we can't do this. There, there are giants in this land. We are like locusts to them. They're going to squash us like jelly. We, there's, it's not possible. Two came back and said, no, God is able to do this. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua takes a big part in the story we're reading today. So the book of Joshua opens up with the people of Israel, the next generation, the ones who had wandered in the wilderness, had passed away in that same wilderness. And it turns its attention to that next generation and its conquest and inheritance of the promised land. Up to this point in the book of Joshua, the Israelites have had Joshua elected like Moses was elected by God as their leader. They've crossed over the Jordan River in a way that's very reminiscent of the Red Sea crossing of the Exodus. They've sent spies into the promised land like the previous generation have. And when they heard that report, they didn't cower in fear. They instead consecrated themselves just as they should have in the face of God. In this story, they're set up in the exact way as their previous generation was. And then they come to their first challenge, the city of Jericho. Jericho was certainly an important city on the border of Canaan, and because of its location, was a walled city. Much like the rest of Canaan, it worshipped Canaanite gods. Its presence signifies both a spiritual and a physical rebellion to the Lord and the people of the Lord. The Israelites had an enemy that had a foothold in the land, and they were certainly not prepared to lay siege to a 
city like Jericho. So let's look at verse 1. We're going to take this passage in piece by piece, kind of explain it as we go, and then we will uh, decide what we should do with it as the people of God. Verse 1 says this, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. This is a very telling verse. No one came in or out of the city despite the fact that they have walls, despite the fact that they have mighty men. They were afraid of Israel. Even though it happened years ago, they knew what happened to Egypt. They knew what happened to the nations that opposed Israel in the wilderness. Israel's God had become infamous. So infamous that they decided to go on a city-wide lockdown. Rather than surrender to the Lord, they chose to weather out the storm and trust in the safety of their walls. We know this because just a few chapters earlier, Rahab uh, is, harbors the spies of Israel, and she says, I know your God. I know him. He is mighty, and he has taken Egypt out, and he's taken the, the nations in the wilderness out. I don't want anything to, to do with this rebellion that Jericho is giving. I, I want to surrender to him. So she knows, the whole city of Jericho knows that God is coming. Let's see what he will do. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, and its king, and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. You shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. Joshua receives his instructions, um, but they're not exactly encouraging instructions. Uh, he assures Joshua at the beginning, hey, look, man, I have made Jericho. It's, it's in your hands. It's going to happen. And then gives them the strategy that losing teams, when their coach is mad at them, laps all around the city. They get laps. He didn't provide knowledge of like, hey, here's how to build a catapult. You know, you can, here's a siege tower. Here's, these cool, here's this cool secret entrance. He didn't like break the multiverse and come in and be like, Joshua, you haven't heard of it yet, but there's this thing called an Apache helicopter. It'll take him out real quick, right? None of that happened. He said, march, and then yell. That's not exactly comforting news for Joshua or the people of Israel. This doesn't play out like an action movie. In fact, it kind of plays out more like a comedy. Let's see what happens. Verse 8. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord, went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout 
or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. And the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the ark of the Lord walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them. And the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. I don't know about you guys. Um, strenuous activity isn't really, like, fun. I don't know, you know, like, walking a lot, not fun. Running, certainly not fun, right? All of those things are Israel's command right now. Yeah, I mean, they get to walk around a city, probably, like, in, like, really, really hot, hot desert, uh, you know, and then Joshua says, hey, uh, don't talk, right, which is my favorite activity. So not only am I having to do, like, my least favorite activity, I'm also not allowed to do my favorite activity. And that's no fun. I mean, this is the worst battle plan ever. Walk around a city, don't talk, listen to dudes, blow ram's horns. If you've ever heard a ram's horn blown, it's not pretty, right? That's their idea. That's their plan. That's God's plan. And we read, and there's not a single complaint from Joshua. There's not a single complaint from Israel. Note kind of the contrast here. The previous generation built a golden calf when the plan seemed shaky. This generation not only receives the information well, they get to walk in. They're not walking alone, however, as they had done in the River Jordan, the Ark of the Covenant goes with them. The Ark's presence is a clear sign that Israel is not going to battle in their own power. It's not a, a holy war where Israel is going to battle for God in the name of God. It's Yahweh's war that Israel gets to participate in. This is an amazing thing that it, it, Israel's obedience to the Lord without complaint shows not only that they understand this isn't ours, this is the Lord's, and clearly he's got a plan to make it his. Let's follow through with it. Let's see if they do. Verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble on it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. They then devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, 
oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. The time comes for Israel to be obedient to the Lord, and on the seventh day they do just that, and they get to see God's power on display. The walls are fall, have fallen down, and that solidifies that it was God doing the fighting, not Israel. This truth is made abundantly clear through where the victory spoils go to. They don't go to each individual man in the army as would be custom in the ancient Near East. They don't go to Joshua, which would sometimes happen in the custom of the ancient Near East. They went to the treasury of the Lord, and the rest of the city was destroyed so that no man could claim prize for himself. We have to understand that this entire book is all about God's victory for Israel, not Israel's victory for God. When we see this, we can understand that everything in this land from Joshua 6 onward belongs to the Lord. Whether it's the sun standing still a few chapters later, whether it's crossing the Jordan a few chapters earlier, all of it is done by the hand of God. Let's continue reading. Verse 22. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers who all belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all of the land. We come to the end of this passage, and we see an extravagant exception made by God. Among the people of Jericho, there was only one who believed in his power and yielded to him, Rahab. In Joshua chapter 2, just a few chapters earlier, we see her exclaim that God is the God in the heavens and among the earth, that she knew what he did to Egypt and the other nations that opposed him. And after hearing this news, Rahab did not defiantly reject God as the rest of her city did. She feared him, and she humbled herself to surrender, not just to Israel, but to the God of heaven and earth. Through his this surrender we see not only uh, part of God's plan for the conquest, but also his conquest of sin and of death. In Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, the name of Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute of all people, is recorded, proving that God's plan for vic victory is bigger than anyone can imagine. So what now? We've read and, and hopefully <laughs> explained a story familiar to many. What does the conquest of a land in the ancient Near East have to do with us in, the, in 21st century Johnson County? I'm glad you asked. 
This passage teaches us that ultimately God has the victory in three ways in our life. The first way God wins is God wins despite our rebellion. Despite our rebellion. Jericho was in absolute rebellion to God's name and his power. They saw who he was and they decided to trust in their own power. But if we really think about it, we do exactly the same thing. Sure, we don't live in an ancient walled Canaanite city, but we tend to build our own walls. Those walls look different for each one of us, but they all function for the same purpose, to keep God out. Some of us build walls through work, say, Lord, this is mine, not yours. Some of us build walls through skills that we have that we like to flex, and we like to not attribute those to the Lord. Some of us build walls with our family. We don't let God enter into those spaces. If we keep any of these things from the Lord, we functionally draw a line in the sand and we declare these parts of our life off limits. We believe, like the people of Jericho, that somehow our lives are something we get to dictate limits on to the creator God, despite what we know about his character. What the story illustrates for us is that it is more than foolish. Jericho trusted in their walls only for God to completely destroy and claim absolutely everything inside. We build our walls only to be knocked down and for God to claim what was his in the first place. Our life of, of tiny little rebellions is no match for the God who kicks down walls with no effort. And frankly, he can do that any way he pleases. I was 11 years old at a uh, youth camp in Ormond Beach, Florida. And uh, I had the, the pastor came up to speak that night and he gave a really message, good message, I'm sure, I don't remember it. But, uh, and then he asked this question, which is sometimes asked at youth camp, does anyone feel called to the ministry? Does anybody in this room feel called to the ministry? Come talk to me, come talk to your pastor after this. At that moment, I knew I was called to the ministry at 11 years old. But I thought about it, and I said, mm, no. Uh, I don't, this is the last thing I want to do. This is what Dad did. Uh, he's done it since I was four years old. I know what the, the situation is like for a pastor's family, uh, being a pastor's kid for most of my life. And, and looking at those things that just kind of the cause and effect of pastoral and ministry life, I said, absolutely not. I don't want anything to do with this. Right then and there in an auditorium. And I continued to grow, continued to uh, be a part of student ministry wherever I was. And, and one church that I was a part of, where my dad was my student minister, had multiple volunteers keep coming to me and keep coming to me and said, Zach, you're, you're called to the ministry. God has given you these gifts and you need to use them in the way he's called you to. And I went, yeah, thanks. That's really, really nice of you to say. Uh, I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm not going for it. This is not what I want my life to be. It's not what I want my family's life to be like. I got to my freshman year of college and declared myself as a physical education major. I don't really know why. Um, <laughs> I have no idea. I, I, that was like, I guess I can do that, you know. And then I got to, you know, my first class and it was a New Testament class and I loved it. And my actual major class, which was a physical education class, I loathed. It was awful. I failed out of college that semester. I didn't 
really put much effort into seeking the Lord, seeking his plan for my life. I built those walls so much that I was completely and utterly dependent upon myself and what I thought I could do. Failed out of college, ended up back home, living with mom and dad, living with the dad who had faithfully served the Lord in ministry for probably 20 years by that point. And sitting there, jobless, moneyless. I mean, just everything was absolute, absolute low for me. I still had those volunteers in my student ministry that I graduated out of grab me and say, Zach, the Lord has called you to the ministry. That's why you're here. And that's what you need to surrender to. And now I'm preaching here. So you can see how that turned out, right? <laughs> God got a hold. Uh, seriously, we, we build these walls and we say, God, not this, not this, not this. And he goes, you don't get the right to tell me not this. I'm God. I know what's best for you. Quit building the walls. Quit rebelling against my plan. Which leads us to the second way God wins. God wins through our obedience. The Israelites trusted that the Lord would deliver them the city no matter how preposterous the plan was. They followed his directions perfectly. If you grew up in the Wiggins household, that's my household, there was a phrase that was repeated far too often by our parents, way too often. And this is the phrase, obedience is right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry for the kids whose parents just grabbed that and went, that's really good. You'll learn something, I promise. But my brothers and sisters and I hated this phrase. We heard it over and over and over. And now as a 30-year-old man, I repeat it to myself almost daily. It's a great way to understand obedience. Uh, and in this passage, Israel operated on that scale three out of three. They did every single one of those things. The Israelites got to participate in the victory of God through their obedience in the same way, through our obedience, we get to participate in God's victory. Through our sanctification, through our, our growing in our life with Jesus, growing to become more and more like him. One author calls that a long obedience in the same direction. And in that same direction, we get to see God have the victory in our own lives and in lives of others around us. Let's take the record straight. It's not because of who we are. And it's not because of what we've done that God gets the victory. That he's not dependent upon us. It's only because of his grace that obedience in him is even possible. God gets the victory no matter what we do. We get to decide whether we want to participate in that victory. So God wins despite our rebellion. God wins through our obedience. Finally, God wins in our surrender. God wins in our surrender. In the midst of the conquest, there was one person and her family that was spared, Rahab. Rahab was spared because she saw the awesome power of God and she surrendered to it. Through her surrender, God allowed her to experience victory in him. And what about us? Are, are we living lives of surrender? Rahab was once in total opposition to God. She lived a life of sin. She lived a life of idolatry. She was just like the rest of her Jerichoite brothers and sisters. 
But when she was confronted with the character of God, she saw a way through, a way out through surrendering to him. Do we do the same? When we are confronted with the character of God in our sin, when we're confronted in the character of God, with the character of God when we think we're too good enough, when we're confronted by the character of God in any way, do we surrender to it? Or are we just like the rest of Jericho who rebels? Is our attitude of, towards God one of surrender or is it one of wall building? This may come as a surprise to you, but ultimately this passage is about Jesus. We were in rebellion towards the very character of God. Therefore, he lived a perfect life, a perfect obedience. He died on the cross as an ultimate sacrifice so that we could surrender to him. The conquest of Canaan is just the beginning of the conquest of sin. In light of his life, death, and resurrection, sin, death, and rebellion are conquered by the very outpouring of God's character, namely a person, Jesus Christ. Often we read these stories, these really well-known Old Testament stories that some of us learn through Veggie Tales or Flannel Graphs or whatever it may be, how you learn these Old Testament stories that are awesome to think about and to hear. Often we place ourselves in the feet of the victor. All right, think about David and Goliath. Man, I'm just, I just want to be like David. And I've got my, you know, my five stones and they're these things. And, or, I, man, when it comes to Daniel and the lions, then I'm just like Daniel, man. I, I, just, I just wait and I'd trust. Just like that in this story, we tend to think of ourselves as Joshua and the Israelites. We tend to think of ourselves as the ones who can obey perfectly who can match God's, uh, you know, orders with our obedience and see him work. But we might be a little confused as to what happens next. They didn't follow his orders. They stole from Jericho. They failed. God still gives them victory, but they ultimately failed. So if we want to compare ourselves to the Israelites, we, we need to wake up to the reality that our obedience outside of Christ will never be good enough. Never be good enough. It'll be just like Israel's. We'll have our good times, sure. People can point back and say, wasn't that awesome? But then they'll also have to point back and say, yeah, they missed it. Because we do. Ultimately, we're the Jerichoites in this story. We're the ones in perfect rebellion against God, knowing full well who he is. Jesus is the true and better Israel, who is perfect obedience, who accomplishes what we could never accomplish so that we can surrender to him. Isn't that an amazing truth? Isn't that an amazing place to be in the hands of a God who has perfect obedience on our behalf? If you haven't trusted in that, if you haven't surrendered to that, you just need to believe that Jesus was God's son, that he died on the cross for your sins, for what separated you from God. You believe that he rose again on the third day conquering sin and 
death. If you already believe that and you're going, yeah, I know that, Zach. I'm glad you know it. I hope you hear it a billion more times because it's something we need to hear every day. Because often, even though we believe those words, we're not very good at surrendering. We're not very good at saying, Lord, I'm yours and no one else's. The victory belongs to you. I belong to you. Let that be our prayer this morning. Pray with me.